0: Um, you know, this past weekend, um, I was out at Sunrise Community Church at the beach and Dr. Al Mohler was out there. He's the president of seminary. I've had him on the radio a couple of times. He does a a thing called the daily, the briefing every day. He reads a lot of news and ingest it and then tries to give a biblical worldview when he puts that stuff out. It's it's been very helpful. I've enjoyed it. It's, It's been good for me. Uh, to think about things that I don't normally hear about, because I don't peruse every news source that's out there, uh, but he, he's up on things, but some of the things he said this weekend were really uh, striking, because I, I guess I just haven't really thought about it. I mean, when he said it, it made sense, but we're seeing a complete destruction and, and tear down of our moral precepts that you and I grew up with. I mean, it's a complete breakdown. Right now, I mean, the, the only guiding principle for morals in our country is consent. That's what it is. If somebody consents to something, it doesn't matter what they consent to. They can consent to two men being together. They can consent to two women being together. They can consent to multiple partners. They can consent to whatever as long as there's consent. Yeah, whatever. There is no boundaries, it's just consent. That's not how you and I grew up. That's not how for centuries the church existed to hold up biblical values in a community. And somewhere along the line, back in the 70s I think, is when we started redefining things and and homosexuality was no longer... Bad or wrong. I mean, it's funny because if you remember, I used to watch a show called MASH. It was a comedy TV sitcom. But even in that program, they, homosexuality was portrayed as a bad thing, not a good thing. Back then. They can't even show those programs today because they're not politically correct. And now you've got churches waving the pride flag on their church building in affirmation of these values. And he said, you know, if they're waving a a pride flag on their church, it's not a church. It's not a biblical church. And we kind of read, they're trying to redefine atonement. And I love one thing he brought out that was really interesting. He talked about how our culture... Wants all the benefits that were formed under the basis, you know, a basis of biblical values. What they want is the benefits, but they don't want the values. He said it's kind of like trying to appreciate a, a flower when you cut off the root and you rip the root out. The flowers don't produce. The flowers don't reproduce. They they're dead. And that's what happens with culture. And, you know, he talked about how patriarchy is now a bad word in our culture. Have you heard that? Have you heard people degrade that word or use that word in a derogatory way? It's patriarchy. It's in the church they talk about it. Children of parents who raised them in biblical values, what the Bible community was about, how God's people always function. Under a patriarchal rule, that was the way God established the family. Male leadership, not male domination. There's a difference between the two. There were biblical roles for men and women that have been redefined in our culture now. And, and the church is just sucked right up into it. And the church is accommodating. Why? Because of uh, pragmatism, pragmatic compromise. And so because of that, when you take a stand against those values of the world, because we're in a dilemma, aren't we? we? We have to live in a world that doesn't appreciate biblical values, but we're supposed to function in that world under biblical values as his people. And so what that does is it makes the world an enemy to us, not by our choosing, by their choosing. And so, when you start passing laws like they're passing in Canada or in Finland, by the way, there's a Finnish uh, member of parliament who's on trial, even as we are here, because she tweeted a Bible verse and challenged the status quo in a a liberal church about homosexuality over in Finland. So she's on trial now over there for that as hate speech. You can add to that a Lutheran pastor over there is under the same thing. Yeah, well, yeah, that's her. That's her husband. Really? That's her husband. Yes. The Canadian guy. The Cana- no, no. They're, 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 this is in Finland, but in Canada they passed a law called anti. It's an anti-conversion law. But the truth is, we don't believe in uh, conversion therapy any more than they want us to do that. And that, uh, Moeller said, he said, we don't believe in conversion therapy. We believe in conversion, right? Because if people are converted, guess what? Their lives change. There's, there's a consequence to the conversion. Patriarchy goes all the way back to Genesis. Do you realize? Some of you may not have read this or may not remember this. Do you know that when Abraham died, think about this for a second. When Abraham died, he sent his servant who was put in charge of his whole estate. <laughs> Not his son, Isaac. His servant, because his servant was older, wiser, and he tasked his servant to go find a wife for his son, and he was the one in charge of distributing funds and taking care of business. Why? Because he was older, wiser, and that's what Abraham wanted. Now, in today's culture, you know what would happen? Isaac would have hired an attorney and gone after the money right away. Because we don't think like that anymore. But do you know how old Isaac was when that happened? Forty years old. That's not a young kid. He's 40 years old and his father, before he passed, told his servant, go find him a wife. And by the way, you're in charge of my estate. For right now. But the servant called the son master. Because he recognized who the owner was. But God wanted the servant in charge. See we don't think that way. That's patriarchal. When the oldest son was given a double portion of the money or the blessing. When the father passed away. It was not to spend on himself. It was to take care of the community. The father's community. that called the Beitav the house of the father, all the family that was there. That's why the son was given more money. It wasn't to go spend it. Like, that's why it was so offensive when the prodigal son goes away because he wanted to spend it all on himself. He wasn't thinking about community. Guys, we've all grown up with an individual mindset as it relates to our money, as it relates to our time, as it relates to our resources. By the way, time is the great equalizer, isn't it? Doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter how much uh, influence you have. Everybody only gets twenty-four hours in a day. It's the equalizer, and so we all end up with things undone in our daily life. But what we should do is we should start our days off with the Word of God. Do you know how many guys tell me, "Well, I I, I don't have time to read. I try to read, and I just, I, I, I man, I'm so busy." Do you know how long it takes you to read through the Bible? If you just started reading in Genesis chapter one, verse one, and you just read out loud right here, right now from Genesis and you finished all the way through Revelation, you know how long it'd take you to do that just to verbally read through it? Any ideas? Week. Seventy two hours. Seventy two hours. Seventy two hours. So if you spend 15 minutes a day reading in a year, you can read the whole Bible. But we don't. We put other things there. We don't see this as a value. And guys, when you read this, you see that God's power is uncontested throughout. You see it over and over and over. That's what we talked about last week in chapter 12. So when these enemies of God come against us, his people... And they try to harm us and keep us and discourage us. They can't take away your salvation, but what they can do is hurt your witness. They can destroy your witness. They can't steal your salvation if you're his, if you're his kid. But what they can do is they can destroy your witness. And that's what Satan wants to do. But he's all-powerful. And if he's your dad... You don't have to fear what the world says they're going to do. Doesn't matter what they say. Doesn't matter how much power they have. Doesn't matter how much money they have, how much influence. It doesn't matter. He's in control. And last week, we got a taste of that in seeing what happened with Peter when he was put in jail. We just covered the first 11 verses but when he was put in jail by Herod and guarded by four squads of soldiers, by the way, Jeff asked last week, were they Roman or were they the Temple Guard? I still contend they were the Temple Guard because the soldiers were executed. I can't see a Jewish, not even a Jewish, an Idumean guy executing Roman soldiers. You know what I'm saying? I I I think that That would have been a stretch, because even though he hung around the Roman people, I don't know that he had that kind of authority over Roman people, like certainly over the Roman soldiers. The Romans and the the Jewish people didn't get along. They were a threat to each other. So that's why I think they were probably temple guards. But Herod deployed four squads of people to keep Peter from getting out, and he still got out. Why? Because God wanted him out. And that's what we looked at. We looked at this idea of God calling us to trust his, that his power is uncontested. And we should rest in that. We should rest in that strength that God portrays. Not our strength. It's not that the situation even will get better. But it's that God, if he wants to, can deliver me for this. So we shouldn't pay attention to what's going on in the world? No, no, no. Not that we shouldn't pay attention to it, but we don't fear it. I said something last week that's really confused my thinking all this week. Okay. <laughs> if I understood you right, you said Joe Biden is in there because God wanted him there. Yes, that's correct. That's the, all this stuff is going on now. God wanted this to happen to show us something? Well, it may be his judgment against us as a country. Because a country, a, a country doesn't exist in eternity. So nations experience discipline and judgment in a way that an individual may not experience because we have eternity, right? So, so we can be disobedient, even though we're God's kids. And the Bible says, if we're disobedient and he keeps disciplining us and we ignore it, he could take us off the face of the earth. And then we spend eternity with him. We stand before him, uh, you know, probably with tearful eyes that we didn't make the best our time here, but a nation can't do that. When a nation turns its back on God long enough, God will bring judgment on that nation. So sometimes when he does that, he puts a leader in power who's evil. He puts a leader who could care less about the things of God. And, and so, you know, for some people, they think that was Trump. For some people, they think it's Biden. The point that I made last week is whoever's there is there because that's who God wants there at that time. It wasn't a voting machine that got him there. It wasn't a stolen election that put him there. It was because God said, "Right now, this is the guy that I want leading America." For whatever reason. Well, if God is punishing us for what's happened because rejecting God. Only half of us have rejected God. The other half are Christians in those country. Well, so I, 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 would, I would say <laughs> I would say somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe 10 to 15 percent are really believers. Really? Yes. The Bible says it reigns on the just and the unjust. Yeah, it does. It does. And, and, and the point is that just because people profess Jesus doesn't mean they're his. Okay? There, and I said last week, there's a lot of Simon the magicians in the world who want to use Jesus for their own benefit. He's not a fire insurance policy. He's called us to be his, to be deployed out into a world, to be his witnesses. So if 95% of the people in the world aren't telling people about him, what does that tell you about the health of the church? And so that today, as we finish looking at this chapter, the other two ideas that I want to look at are that God calls us to trust him, one, because his people are secure in his care. So even though we're in, we may be in a country that's experiencing God's judgment, We are secure in his care. We're secure knowing whether uh, Daniel in the Old Testament was told not to worship God. He worshiped him. He was told not to pray. He prayed. They saw him. They said, you got to renounce that. Stop doing that. You're going to be thrown in the lion's den. They put him in the lion's den. Lions didn't eat him because God shut their mouth. The very people that got him thrown in there were thrown in there. As soon as they touched the ground, the lions ate him up and got him that quick. God, God cares for his people. It doesn't mean his people won't hurt. They won't go through it. See, people see James's death as a victory for Satan, but it wasn't. He willingly laid his life down because he understood that this is temporary. And even though the authorities told him to stop preaching, he continued on. He finished, and I'm sure when he entered heaven, he was said, well done, good and faithful servant. He willingly lay it was a victory. In the same way Peter getting out of prison was a victory, him willingly laying his life down was a victory. My glasses broke, man. Got so excited I tore my glasses. That's and all the gonna... disciples and were executed except for John. Yeah. Man. Yeah. <laughs> he was, he was so the second thing in this text, the last thing is that he calls us to trust him because his plans are unstoppable. It's not just that he cares for his people. When God wants something to happen, the world can do everything they can to try to prevent it, and it's not going to stop it. Now, that applies to you personally as well as to a nation. If God wants you to do something... And you go, well, how do I know if God wants me to do it? Well, that's one reason you spend a lot of time in the Word. You spend a lot of time communing with Him. Because the closer you are to God, the more you know Him and His Word, guess what? The more sensitive you become to His voice. It's like when... when If, if uh, Amos and I were in a store and he heard my voice, he'd turn because he know who was... He, he recognizes my voice, right? Because he and I spend a lot of time together. But... If he if he's around somebody he's never spent time with, they can talk all day long. He's not going to recognize the voice. And that's the problem. A lot of people... I Listen, I've never heard God's voice audibly in all my years on the earth. Never. But I have heard Him speak to me through His Word, through circumstances, and affirmations that I've asked Him for many times. So much so that I believed that he wanted me to do stuff, and the people around me, including my own family, not my wife, but other people in my family, my extended family, were saying, you're crazy. You can't do this. You can't do this. And God says, no, this is what you're going to do. And that's what I did. And so we see in Peter a story of a God who delivers him and as he delivers him, we, we covered verses 1 through 11 last week. What happens in verse 12? You remember in 1 through 11, it's the story of him getting out of prison. So I want to take you back just real quick to, if you open up to Acts 12. Let me get, uh, let's see if I can do this. I'm going to use my broken glasses. Uh, if you go back in chapter 12 and just, I'm not going to read 1 through 11 again. But I just want you to go to verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That word earnest means straining. It, it, it's a, like a limb being stretched. It's the, They were agonizing. We get the word agonize from that straining in prayer. It wasn't, like, Lord, I just pray Peter gets out of jail. Hey, what are we doing tonight? You know, kind of a prayer. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it's the, the word when it says he they were earnestly praying. They're just saying they were agonizing. Why? Why were they agonizing? Well, James had been murdered. Other believers were in jail and Peter was in jail. The leader of their church, the leader of that movement. This was a big deal. And they were agonizing. What was Peter doing while they were agonizing? He was sleeping. He was sleeping so sound that when an angel was standing next to him, the brightness of which had to have lit up the cell didn't even wake him up. He had to strike him and say, hey, get up. He was sound asleep. How could he rest like that? Because he trusted in the power of God. He saw the power of God demonstrated. And he had been boldly preaching. He was told to be quiet. He said, we can't, we got to talk. Acts 4, Acts 5. He had already been released from prison once, right? So that's how he could be sleeping. He has seen God work. He believed God in his word. And God had told him, Peter, you're not going to die till you're an old man. So he was resting. By the way, Herod, I don't know if you know this. Herod, I said this last week, Herod, uh, Agrippa, is the grandson of Herod the Great. His father, Aristobulus, I don't know if I pronounce that right, but his father was murdered by Herod the Great. So imagine the kind of impact that had on him. He was whisked off to Rome, grew up in Caesar's household as a playmate to who? Caligula. That's a good guy. Caligula was his childhood friend. Think about that for a second. His father killed by his grandfather and he hangs around with Caligula. So he comes back and his whole thing is about power and he's got favor with Rome, but he doesn't have favor with the Jews. And so he kills James, sees that makes him happy and goes, okay, I'm going to take the leader. Of the movement. He gets Peter, throws him in jail, but it's Passover and he can't let that overshadow what he's going to do, so he waits. And it was the night before he was going to execute him. God's timing is perfect. He's never early, but he's never late. Amen. He showed up that night, and then we'll, we're going to pick it up there in verse 12. When he realized this, talking about Peter, Acts 12, verse 12. When he realized this, when he realized what? Well, I'll back up to 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and he spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, that they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give the glory and he give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased. Notice it says but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem and when they had completed their service Bringing with him John, whose other name was Mark. May God bless His word. God calls us to trust him because his people are secure, are secure in his care. He wants us to call out to him in confidence. You know, Joshua, Joshua took over for Moses. What did God say to Joshua? Over and over and over. Don't fear. Rock Kazak, right? Remember that? Don't be afraid. Be strong. Be strong. And at the end of Joshua, the end of kind of his life, in Joshua 23:14, he says this: "Not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. Not one word. Not one word, because he's faithful. He is a faithful God. His people are secure in his care. So when we have a problem, we need to cry out to him in confidence. Go to him. I can't tell you the number of times that I hear from people, well, I prayed and God doesn't hear my prayer. You know, I I pray and pray and pray. He never hears me. Over and over and over again, like a broken record. Isaiah 49, 15 says, A mother may forget her child, but I will not forget you. God doesn't forget us. You know, in Luke 24, when Luke wrote the first letter at Theophilus, he was telling about how the apostles, these are the 12, dismissing the women. The women come and say, Hey, he's risen. <laughs> The apostles are praying. They don't know what to do. The women, He's risen. And they didn't believe Him. Just like now. Who is it? It's Peter. It's Peter. And she leaves. Guys, Peter's here. He's at the gate. Peter's at the gate. You're out of your mind. Let's get back to praying. Lord, we pray for Peter. We pray that You would deliver him and pray that You would bring him out of here. I'm ki- ki- That's insane. They're praying for Peter. They're agonizing for Peter. Hey, I'm here. It's the middle of the night. I'm a fugitive. Get me off the street. Think about that. I mean, Rhoda just goes in there and tells them, why are we so slow to believe God's going to answer our prayers? I see it all the time. Doug, do you think maybe it could be that the same people were praying for James and he got executed so they felt like their prayers weren't answered there? Maybe, but it appears, I could be wrong, but... It appears, because it doesn't give a a real time period there, that James was pretty quick. Peter was in jail for at least a week. Because Passover lasted a week, right? So he's in jail. And as he's sitting there, we don't know what he's doing in jail, but he's apparently sleeping well. And they are praying. They're agonizing. Not just for a few minutes. He is the leader of the church, and when he shows up, they don't believe him, and we do the same thing. I I remember my daughter, Ellie, when, when we adopted Ellie, we adopted Kate first. Kate's my oldest daughter we adopted, and after Kate had been with us a while, Lori felt like God wanted us to adopt another, and we prayed about it, and I felt the same thing. And so we said, if we're going to do it again, we want to adopt a special needs child, one that, because that, the special needs children were harder to adopt out. And Ellie was missing a left hand. She had some medical issues with her lungs. And, you know, we, we just felt like God wanted her to be our child. She was supposed to be ours. And so when you adopt a special needs child, um, you have to fill out the application but then they will take that child off the adoption list for two weeks. In other words, no other family will come in there and adopt that child uh, while that child, while you have a two-week kind of period to get your stuff together and come up with $5,000, which is an initial payment over to the Chinese to let them know you're serious about adopting this child. Well, we, you know, I used a credit card to make the application fee of $200 in faith, believing that God would provide for the money to adopt Ellie. We go through the two weeks and we're two days before the two week deadline for $5,000. We don't have a dime. There's not a dime there. Nobody's helped us. And we were of the mindset that if God wants somebody to help, he will move in their hearts. And so we're just saying, okay, God, we thought you wanted us to adopt, but we don't have $5,000. And in two days, she goes back into the pool and hopefully somebody will adopt her. But we really feel like she's supposed to be in our family. We're in a restaurant having lunch. And there's a picture of Ellie in the middle of the table. And we're praying and talking to each other and then talking to God about what to do because I just told Lori, I don't feel led to put all that on a credit card. I feel like if God wants us to have this child, he will provide for us. And, um, and we just literally just grabbed our hands and prayed right there. A couple of minutes later, an elder's wife from our church in Houston walks in with a lady and we, we didn't know who the lady was with her. She was a new lady to town. Her and her husband had moved to town. And so the elder's wife asked, is that Kate? She thought it was Kate and it wasn't. It was Ellie. It's a picture of Ellie. And so we told her what was going on and just asked her to pray. And she goes and sits down that night, that lady that was with her that we don't know, called and said, listen, I went home and talked to my husband and we want to help with the money. How much do you need? And we said, well, it's 5000 and when do you need it? Tomorrow. Because <laughs> it's got uh, two days. we got to get it to them. And she said, well, there will be other costs, won't there? And, and I said, yeah. And she said, well, we want to help with those too. Uh, can we get together tomorrow? So we got together the next day, her husband and her and me and Lori. And they wrote out a check for not only the $5,000, uh, but they also wrote a check out for the the uh, home study, which was two thousand dollars, so they wrote out seven thousand dollars to two to, to people they didn't even know, never met, didn't have any connection with them all, and in the process of our conversation over the meal, they made the statement, "Oh, and we want to help you with whatever costs are necessary with this adoption." Well, that blew right by us. We didn't hear it. We we didn't hear it at all. We didn't. It didn't register with us, and so. A few months go by and we're getting ready for the latter part because uh, adoptions at that time were running about $25,000 for an international adoption for all the stuff you got to do. And, and so we were like, um, you know, Lori, what are we going to do with the rest of this? And we said, well, we need to let all the people that have been supporting us in ministry know and know how to pray for us because this is what they need to pray for. So I sent it out and say, please pray that God would bring in the remaining. I think it was like maybe $15,000 or something like that. So we had added these people to our mailing list. And the guy calls me and says, what are you doing? I, I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, why are you asking people to pray for a need that's already been met? I said, "What are you talking about? You're confusing me." He goes, "We told you when we got together, we wanted to pay for everything. Everything. Did you not hear that?" I said, "No, I didn't hear that." He said, "Yeah, you're asking God. This was his statement. You're asking people to pray for something that God's already met, and it didn't register with me. In the same way that these people are knocking, you know, they're they're praying in the door." The answer to the prayer is knocking on the door. And it didn't register. Those people ended up paying $27,000 for us to adopt Ellie. Strangers we never knew, never had a connection with. Because you know what happened? They sold a house. And California, moved to Texas, and they earmarked some of that money to go to help orphans. And they said, what better way? We were praying just the other day of how we could help orphans and what better way to help an orphan than to bring them into a godly home. And so God already knew what He was doing. He knew. And so why is it that we have such a hard time believing He's going to answer our prayer? Guys, we need to pray with confidence. That's what He wants us to understand, that we are secure in His care and we can pray with confidence when we have things that hit us. When the world comes against us, we go to our knees. We get our friends to go to their knees. We say, pray, pray. Pray for us. Believe in prayer. Don't... God wants His people to... Listen, when you pray, do you think you're moving God to do something? Or do you think when you pray, God's moving you to do something? Yeah, He's moving you. He already knows what's going to happen. He's moving you in accordance with His will, so that when you pray and you ask for something and then you see it happen, you testify, just like I just did. Because people don't write strangers $25,000, $27,000 checks. That doesn't happen, I don't think. So God's in control, and He wants us to know that. Well, Peter's out there. He's doing his thing. He goes up there. He says, go tell James, the brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, go tell James what's happened. Why? Because the church could have been panicked about what happened to James, the brother of John. So he's wanting to encourage. God's in control, James. God's in control. Yeah, yeah. He, James laid his life down, but God released me. He's still in control. Even though Herod had four sets of guards around me, I was OK. And he got me out of there because it's not my time yet. And so he he got Peter out of there. And Peter goes on, then Herod's mad. He is mad. He goes, he's trying to figure out, because he didn't want this to happen. It's already happened once. So he goes, examines the sentries, and orders them executed. And he says, I'm going to Caesarea. So he goes to Caesarea, for you guys who've been there. You remember that big theater that was there that we sat in? He gives an oration, according to Josephus, there. That's where he gives this this great speech. He's wearing some kind of robe that has silver weaved into it. So when the sun hits it, it gives this glow like he's some kind of divine being. And when he's speaking, the people are going, The voice of a God, the voice of a God. He's no man. And he took the glory. And what happened? God ate him with worms. Uh, Josephus said it took about three to five days for him to die with worms, and I promise you it wasn't a pleasant death. And so look what happened. The great enemy of God, Herod, flipped, like Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin shook his fist up at God right before he died a very painful death himself. You know, yeah. Didn't, Didn't LBJ drop dead the same day? Oh, I don't, I don't know about that. I'm, I'm not... I, I, I don't, he might have. I, all, all I know is that the enemies of God who think they have the upper hand end up realizing in the end that they were on the wrong side of history. And that's what happened to Herod. Listen to what it says in Isaiah. It says in Isaiah 14, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you worms are your covers. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of assembly in the far reaches of the North. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You know, yeah, that's Satan. And you know what Satan whispered to Eve in the garden? You can be God. You can be just like him. He doesn't want you to eat because he don't want you to be like him. Every king wants to be their own God. We want to be our own gods. That's our great sin. It's that we don't yield our lives to him. We want to control our lives. And look at what we're teaching little kids today. Little two-year-olds are controlling their domains. They're controlling things at a very young age, and it's breeding in them this idea, I've got to have it my way even more than you or I experienced growing up. Isaiah 48, 11, God says, My glory I will not give to another. Amen. He doesn't. But you know what? We're secure in his care, but also his plans are unstoppable. And that's just not applying to his people. That's also to us personally. If God has a plan for you, it doesn't matter what the world says. When I was in the Marine Corps, I flew a plane called the Harrier. You guys know that. And when I went through flight training to be in the Harrier program, you had to have certain sets of grades at flight school. When you went through Pensacola or Meridian or Beeville or Kingsville, wherever you went to flight training, When you finished jets, there were certain criteria that allowed you to be in the Harrier program. Well, then I got up there in the Harrier program, and there was a hiccup within this training squadron. And the CO of that squadron decided he did not want me to fly Harriers. He decided that it would be better that if I I didn't fly that, that I go fly C-130s or I go fly helicopters or something or maybe I don't even fly at all and to make a real long story short because we don't have a lot of time is he basically recommended me for what's called a field flight performance review board so I had three majors and a colonel sit on a board at a local level and say uh, ask me a bunch of questions and then they voted on what to do with my career in the Marine Corps they voted for me to be reassigned either to a multi-seat aircraft or to infantry. That goes up to Headquarters Marine Corps. They flew me up to Washington, D.C. I get up to Washington, D.C. They have a, what's called a general review board. I have a, a one-star general, four colonels, and a Navy captain that spend three hours de- asking me questions. They make a recommendation. That recommendation goes to DCS Air, which is the number three ranking guy in the Marine Corps. He's a three-star general. There you got the Commandant, you have the Assistant Commandant, and then you have this guy. His name was General Keith Smith and people were terrified of this guy. He would literally find you, if you were wearing white socks, you were supposed to wear green socks in his flight suits, but most pilots like wearing white socks. And if he saw you, he'd find you 1500 bucks on the spot. And back then, that was a lot of money for a, for a young lieutenant. But guys were, I mean, so I go into this meeting with him. And I'm, I'm like, Lord, I don't know what to do. I, I, I just, I prayed and I said, Lord, I know you want me to do this. And so I go into the meeting. And first thing he says is, just take a breath and settle down for a minute. And he talked to me for two hours. And at the end of the meeting, he said, my major will let you know what I decide in a couple of days. His three options, send me uh, into multi-seat aircraft, send me out of the Marines period, just get out of the Marine Corps, send me to infantry. He did ask me one question when we were talking. He said, do you think you can fly the Harrier? I said, I know I can, sir. What I didn't see coming was he sent me back into the Harrier program. He sent me back to the colonel who said, we don't want him here. He sent me back and basically said, you will train this guy. Now, that took a lot of pressure off me. And I wondered why all that whole thing happened. But what happened is if I would have completed Harrier training when I first went through I was scheduled to go to Yuma, Arizona. I wouldn't have gone because everybody in my initial class that was supposed to go to Yuma got restationed in Cherry Point. But because I was delayed a year and my orders were for Yuma, at the end of the year, they sent me to Yuma where I became best friends with a guy named Pat Wheeler. He was the wingman on my wing when I had my bird strike. He's a guy that God used me to lead to Christ. And it was at his memorial service that I shared with a thousand Marines, the gospel. And it was at that service that God used for me to transition out of the Marine Corps, ultimately into ministry one day, just through the vehicle of the FBI instead of seminary. But God had a plan. And his plan included me being put on hold for a year in the Harrier program, which looked like a defeat it looked like a failure, but it wasn't. God's plan was unstoppable. These people didn't want me to fl- I knew I was supposed to fly that plane. So my encouragement to you is when the world's saying no, but you know God may be saying yes, you, you sense it, you feel it, trust Him, cry out to Him in confidence because He's all-powerful. I don't care what the world says. Even if it's a three-star general in the Marine Corps, God can move his heart like that, and he did. That was a big lesson for me. Big lesson for me. James 1 says, Let him ask in faith with no doubting. He will receive nothing if there's doubting. James 4, 3, You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly. When we pray, go to the Lord trusting that he's all-powerful, that he cares about you, he only wants your good and lay out your request to him. Don't be anxious. Be like Peter. Be anxious for nothing. Yeah. I, I, I just want to close with this thing. I know, I know we're a couple of minutes over, but I want to close with this. I thought it was striking. In World War II, in a small town in Texas, there was a fire that took the lives of 263 children. It was horrible. After the war, the small town built a brand-new school with one of the best sprinkler systems in the world. Never again would this community experience a tragedy like the one they experienced. Honor students were selected to take the people in community on tours through the new school to show them the finest sprinkler system ever put in. As the town continued to grow, seven years after the new school was built, an addition was needed to the school because the town began to grow as the new construction began, guess what they discovered? They never hooked up the sprinkler system to the water supply. So for seven years, they had sprinkler heads all throughout the school with no supply. Even though they had access to it, they never took advantage of it. That's what we do with prayer a lot of times. We're not hooked up not hooked up when we're not hooked up guys some of us need to have a better connection to the source spend time in the word spend time praising and spending time with your father so you recognize his voice and he'll direct you he will direct you chuck will you close our time in prayer today